Welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We're excited to announce that we will now be releasing these episodes every week on Wednesday morning. The best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you listen. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via the Venmo app by sending your donation to at WildHeartNashville, or you can go to WildHeartMeditationCenter.org and click the Donate tab. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. I wanted to begin a series of shorter Dharma talks to offer as content for the podcast starting this week. And today I wanted to talk about sila, or the ethical trainings in the Buddhist Noble Eightfold Path. Specifically, I wanted to focus on the five precepts, the five training precepts that lay practitioners of the Dharma, which means non-monks, are encouraged to up hold as a support for their practice. First thing I wanted to do is to contextualize a little bit of a conversation around Buddhist ethics, as most of us are probably really heavily influenced by the Judeo-Christian model of morality. In considering how to best understand and then apply the ethical practices of the Buddha's Eightfold Path, which are specifically wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood within our modern world, 21st century America for most of us, it's important to first consider the contextual lens in which we relate to ethics in the West, specifically as it relates to the far-reaching influence of how ethics has been passed down through Western structures of religion and also through the criminal justice system. First thing to consider here is that Christian ideology has largely influenced our spiritual orientation to ethics in the form of what we might call legalist ethics, which is common in the Old Testament. And I'm no religious scholar, but I think it's important to understand that this presupposes a ruling of righteousness or sinfulness in the eyes of a divine judge or God. Also, it's important to note that the Western moral basis for our criminal justice system largely maintains a similar frame of legalist ethics, albeit maybe a little bit more flexible than the religious underpinnings of the Old Testament. But in the criminal justice system, behavior is deemed also punishable or passable in the eyes of a judge. So we see some themes here where there's a list of rules or commandments and there is a judge that has the ultimate authority on whether a behavior is passable or righteous or is considered unpassable or sinful. In order to begin an exploration of Buddhist ethics, we must make conscious the reality that despite our current religious beliefs or upbringing or lack thereof, we definitely live and interact within a culture that upholds an understanding that there exists a judge and or a doctrine that determines what's right and wrong in the realms of spirit and justice. We can also then consider that there may be conventional or legalist ways of approaching morality and post-conventional ways, as Lawrence Kohlberg points out in his theory, of relating to morality and ethical principles. So Buddhism falls in this maybe post-conventional framework in that our ethics are mostly focused on this law of karma. That whatever we practice is not 
upheld against the eyes of a divine judge, but it's the actions themselves that are the arbitrator of our consequences. So it's what you do, whatever you practice, you get better at. That's the simple way that I like to put it. So if we're being dishonest in the world and we're lying or being manipulative in our relationships and our business dealings, we're going to come to view the world more distrustfully and we're going to need to then reinforce the need to be more dishonest and manipulative moving forward. So whatever you practice, you project and perceive the world to be the same and you react in the same way towards it. So in Buddhism, we're given a framework, the five training precepts to help us to have a sense of structure for guiding our actions. And we utilize mindfulness as the awareness that monitors the intentions, the motivations behind our actions and ultimately our behavior. So mindfulness is, in this sense, the divine judge. It's our own awareness of our experiences, our motivations, our behaviors that helps us to intervene and to try to align our actions with our values that ultimately helps us to move towards freedom. So one of the interesting things that I like to talk about with the five training precepts is that these are all under the basket of sila, Buddhist ethics. And practicing wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, these three factors of the Eightfold Path are really our protector they're the thing that brings about the security and the foundation for the Buddhist teachings. One of the interesting concepts in Buddhism is that this idea of safety doesn't exist in the human world, in the human realm. It's because we are all born into this world getting older, we will become sick, we will pass away. Sometimes we get what we want, sometimes we get what we don't want. Because of the law of impermanence, safety doesn't exist. Change is the, the king, it's the ruler of our domain. Impermanence is the ruler of our domain. So in an impermanent world, there's no security because everything's changing. And the Buddha says that the security that we get is really by protecting our karma by living in line with our values. And I think we experience this in simple ways when we live a day at a time practicing principles of honesty and compassion, generosity. In our life, we go to bed at the end of the night with a little bit more self-esteem, a little bit more of a sense of a connectedness to humanity, the sense of what Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing. We feel connected to other living beings into our world, into the earth. And so sila, in a sense, is the way that we find security in an insecure world. It's at least the foundation for it. And the Buddha talks about this a little bit in one of the suttas. And it really discusses how sila gives rise to safety. He says, there is a case where a disciple of the noble ones who has abandoned the taking of life who is abstained from taking what is not freely given, who is being wise and careful with their sexual energy, who is wise and careful in their speech and refrains from intoxicating drinks and drugs that lead to heedlessness, 
where in doing so, this person is given freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limit, limitless number of beings. And given freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless number of beings, this person gains a share in limitless freedom from danger, animosity, and oppression. This is the gift, the great gift, original, long-standing, traditional, and ancient. And so here the Buddha really talks about the protective quality of living line in line with our values. We don't just do good things because good things are good in this moral sense of unshameful, unblameable, but we do good things because they're protective. They bring a sense of harmony to the world. And this word sila actually has a similar root word as the term in Pali Sanskrit that's called samadana. It sounds like simmer down now. Samadana, which actually means harmony. So sila is all about not right and wrong, but aligning our actions with a harmonious way of being in the world. There's some other benefits of practicing sila. One of the things that the Buddha talks about is how practicing living in line with our values, practicing ethics, brings the benefit of mental clarity. And I would say that it's also helpful in times of depression. If you want to feel good, I believe that you need to try to feel good about yourself. And to feel good about yourself in the Buddhist sense is to feel good about your actions. Because the only thing that we own in the Buddhist view is our actions. So the quickest way to feel good is to feel good about what we're doing, what we're bringing to the world, even if we're not feeling good, if we're feeling isolated, or we just went through a breakup, or are experiencing grief, at least we can rest assured that we are trying our best to move forward with kindness and compassion, with wisdom and clarity. So the Buddha talks about this in one of the suttas, which is how sila brings forth the benefit of mental clarity. He says, furthermore, there's the case where you recollect your own virtues and values. You realize they are untorn, unbroken, unspotted, unsplattered, liberating, praised by the wise, untarnished, conducive to concentration. At any time when a disciple of the noble ones is recollecting their virtues and values, their mind is then not overcome with passion and greed. It's not overcome with aversion and hatred. It's not overcome with confusion and delusion. Their mind heads straight based on virtue and values. And when the mind is headed straight, the disciple of the noble ones gains a sense of the goal gains a sense of the dharma, of the spiritual path, and gains joy connected with the dharma. In one who is joyful, rapture arises. And rapture in this sense means the capacity to take active delight in things. So in one who is joyful, there's this ability to take active delight in things that arises. And one who is rapturous, the body then grows calm. And the Buddha continues, one whose body is calmed, experiences ease, and one who is at ease, the mind will become focused and concentrated on the path. So now I want us to talk a little bit about the five precepts 
and to offer some reflections on them. First, I'll list the five precepts. The first, in its simplest form, is to refrain from killing. In its extended form, which I choose to use, is to refrain from intentionally causing harm to any living beings. The second is to refrain from stealing in its most simple form. In its extended form, I would say that the second is to refrain from taking things that are not freely offered to us. The third is to refrain from sexual misconduct. I like to frame this one more positively and say to set an intention to be wise and careful with our sexual energy. The fourth is to refrain from unwise speech. You could also frame this positively and to say to intentionally practice honesty in our speech and refraining from dishonest or manipulative, harsh or judgmental speech. The fifth precept is to refrain from taking intoxicants. And so if we back up to the first precept, I think it's helpful to look at the spirit of this practice because the precepts are training practices. It's a vow that we take to refrain from intentionally causing harm to any living beings. The emphasis in the first precept is on renunciation. It's letting go of the ways in which we cause harm. And it's also the cultivation of a protection. It's a willingness to protect human life and to protect the life of all living beings. And you'll see that when we're talking about not causing harm, that this is very situational. Some of us may choose a vegan lifestyle to refuse to eat animals or to buy or purchase animal products or products that were tested on animals. Some of us try to be more skillful in our relationships as not to cause harm. Uh, of course, we abstain from hurting people through violent means. I think an important thing for all of the precepts is the need for accountability. In the Theravadan lineage, the early Buddhist Sangha or community, monastic order, they actually have a ceremony that takes place, I believe, every moon cycle, where they ask for elders to give feedback on their conduct. It's almost similar to the Catholics in the confessional. But the idea here is not to ask for repentance as so much as to realign one's heart with the path. So by speaking out loud the ways in which we have stepped outside of the precepts is to get ourselves back on the right path and to have accountability around that. So we can look at harm in a lot of ways. We can talk about the harm that is caused through our consumerism, our harm to the environment, harm to animals, harm within our social and economic structures, uh, there's a lot of ways that we can include this into our practice. One way that I like to do this very simply is just to ask myself the question, what are the ways that we can change our lifestyle to cause less harm? The second precept is to refrain from stealing in its simplest form, or in its long form, I would say it's a vow to undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not freely offered to us. So this is obviously about stealing. It's about not taking things that aren't ours, but it's also about being conscious of 
what's being offered and what's not. Sometimes prying into private matters or even involving ourselves in things that don't really concern ourselves. Gossiping can be a form of taking things that aren't freely offered. So being mindful or aware of how often we take and to practice the alternative, which is again renunciation. Letting go of the need to have things that don't belong to us. Also practicing generosity. Being willing to offer things that we don't need is a way to practice with this precept. On retreat, one of the ways that we practice taking what's freely offered is we give ourselves over to the retreat format. There are people that will serve us food a couple times a day. We will be given a quarters where we can sleep, a place in the meditation hall where we can meditate. And we try to let go of our preferences and our needs for everything aligning up with a level of comfort. And we can trust that we don't need oftentimes as much as we think we do. We don't need to take as much as we think we do. The third precept is to refrain from sexual misconduct. I like to frame this as a vow to undertake the training precept to be wise and careful with our sexual energy. Sexuality is a naturally occurring aspect of human conditioning. We're born into this world sexual beings. We desire and lust after pleasurable experiences. And the difficult thing I think about 21st century modernity is that we have a world, we're born into a world that both glorifies sexuality, but also refuses to talk about it and normalize it at the same time. This means that we often are inundated with sexuality long before we've ever had meaningful conversations around it. And this can then cause issues in intimacy in our romantic relationship. And some of our primary wounds, some of the biggest harm that we've ever experienced have come around sexuality or intimacy and romance. Different traumas, shame, embarrassment, betrayal, resentment, abandonment. These are all things that can arise in that domain. The Buddha said that sexual desire is one of the most powerful energies. I believe in one of the more maybe orthodox suttas, the Buddha says that if there was another energy that coexisted alongside sexual desire, that no human being could ever become enlightened. And I think that this is more of a comment and not how impure sexuality is, but how powerful it is that it's a lot of work to tame that sexual urge and desire. And the important thing here is to practice around our sexuality, to be open to having conversations and have accountability around it, uh, to practice consenting practices, to have a health awareness of our bodies, to be clear in our communication with other people, to approach sexuality with respect, with a mutuality and agreement, So what to do? We start to see our sexual energy just as energy instead of good or bad. Yes, it's powerful and strongly conditioned, but we can learn how to not have to scratch every itch or act on every impulse around it either. And we also don't have to suppress this desire at the same time. 
I think having a community of people that we can check in with and have conversations about sexuality, I think having bottom line behaviors that protect our relationships, mutual agreement in relationships and understanding around sexuality and consent are a great place to start. The fourth precept here is to refrain from unwise speech. I like to frame this more positively, a vow to undertake the training precept to be wise and careful with our speech. This is a big factor of the Buddha's teaching. It shows up both in wise action, which is the fourth factor of the Eightfold Path, and it has its whole place in the Eightfold Path under the third factor of wise speech. So the Buddha is really emphasizing how frequently we are engaging in this aspect of our human condition, is communication. Beyond just direct communication with our words, we're texting, we're emailing, we're posting pictures and images online. There's a lot of communication that's happening all the time. I think a great place to start with wise communication is to really look at how we can be more present listeners in our relationships. Oftentimes when people are speaking, it is activating emotions underneath the surface unconsciously. And a lot of times there are communication breakdowns that occur or assumptions that are made or projections that are acted upon. And practicing around wise speech, I think to start is just to really listen both internally and externally when engaging in speech. We also practice some parameters around our speech. The Buddha encourages us to speak that which is true, that which is useful, that which is done in an appropriate time, and to speak that which is kind. He also encourages us to refrain from divisive speech, gossip, and slander. So practicing in this way, I found to be really helpful parameters for being aware of my speech. Am I speaking the truth? Am I being honest about my experience? Or am I lying, being dishonest or manipulative in the ways that I speak? You know, but balancing this out, sometimes we're trying to be honest, but we also need to do it at the right time, as the Buddha is saying. You know, so understanding is this type of conversation going to be a 30-minute conversation or is this a five-minute conversation or a one-minute conversation we can have as we're walking out the door. So timeliness is important. Also usefulness. How much of our speech is just what the Buddha calls frivolous chatter? This kind of talking for the sake of talking. We've all heard of the nervous talkers, right? Learning to see how much space we're taking up in a conversation and settling back into a place of more curiosity and openness instead of just talking for the sake of talking. And then, of course, speaking that which is kind. Kindness isn't always the same as niceness. Kindness is done with a sense of goodwill. It's done with a sense of mutuality and respect, of harmony. But sometimes we need to say things also very frankly and directly. So practicing around wise speech is a major precept. The fifth and final precept is to refrain from intoxicants. The way that the Buddha says this is to undertake the training precept to refrain from intoxicants that lead to heedlessness. And so there are many different perspectives or opinions on this. 
definitely when we're looking at the Buddha's practice, it's different around the precepts than it is around lay practitioners. For example, with sexuality, if we back up a couple precepts, the Buddha decided to live a celibate life, a life that promoted the spiritual path and a full commitment to the spiritual path was one where he could take this acting on sexual desire, impulses off of the table. And the same with intoxicants. The Buddha encouraged all of the monastics as a part of their training precept and coming into the monastic order to refrain from all intoxicating drinks and drugs because they don't promote mindfulness and clarity of mind. I think it's obvious if we look beyond the semantics of this conversation to say that intoxicants hold the power to promote heedlessness and delusion, confusion and reactivity. Anyone that's drank or used drugs at any point in their life has probably had experiences where they've said things that they regret or done things that they regretted after the fact. And so because this area of our human life is not as maybe essential sexuality to our relationships might be, we can sometimes practice periods of complete abstinence from intoxicating drinks and drugs. And I think this is a great way to practice. I think at very least we can be very aware of the level in which we're consuming intoxicating things and understanding that when it leads to heedlessness, this is when reactivity is dealt into the world and where we experience regret. The last thing I'll say about the fifth precept is I really love the way that Thich Nhat Hanh frames it. He talks about it as refraining from unwise consumption. So beyond just intoxicants like drugs and alcohol, we're also talking about the news media, we're talking about social media, we're talking about being really careful around what we consume, our food, our intake, and not creating rules, but just intuitively listening into our body and mind to be protective of what we take in. 21st century modernity has a lot of options for stimulation, a lot of options for escapism. There's a whole buffet in front of us. So we have to learn how to practice some restraint, not at this level of uh, suppression, but at the level of protecting our clarity of mind, the wisdom and compassion on the spiritual path. So these are some of my reflections about sila, the Buddhist ethical trainings and the five precepts. These are some reflections on the context in which we look at Buddhism as a situational paradigm where we're using mindfulness as the guide for our actions. We're also looking at how sila gives rise to a sense of safety or an inner sense of, I like to say, integrity that we live with and confidence in ourselves. It's also a practice that brings forth mental clarity when there's not so much fear and regret and remorse in the mind because we are living in line with our values. And also I've talked about the breakdown of the five precepts.